Hi, this is Welcome to Self, caring for the human in the therapist chair. And I'm your host, Dr. Haley D. Quinn, fellow human, clinical psychologist, supervisor, and trainer. Welcome to Self is a place where you can come and learn ways to elevate your own care and compassion. A place to rest and be soothed. A place to remember that you are human first and choose the helping profession as just one of the roles in your life. My aim is that this is a place of soothing, comfort, nourishment and nurture. A place where you can also welcome yourself. Welcome to another episode. I'd like to take a moment of gratitude for Rebecca at Learn Play Grow Consulting, who gave feedback on the podcast. She said about episode 7 with Dr. Jai Ying, what a powerful conversation on responsibility, boundaries and self-compassion. This podcast is helping me grow as a person and a practitioner. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for taking the time to send feedback. And I'm so pleased you're finding it helpful. I'm excited to introduce my next guest, Dr. Diana Hill. Diana is a clinical psychologist and co-author of ACT Daily Journal, Get Unstuck and Live Fully with Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Through her online teachings, executive coaching, clinical supervision and private therapy practice, Diana encourages clients to build psychological flexibility so that they can live more meaningful and fulfilling lives. She is the founder and host of the new podcast show, Your Life in Process, and a co-founder of the Psychologists Off the Clock podcast. Diana blogs for Psychology Today and offers regular workshops in compassion and act for clinicians and the general public. Diana has a knack for unpacking complex science-based concepts and making them applicable to daily life in work, parenting, relationships and health. Diana completed her undergraduate work at UC Santa Barbara, majoring in biopsychology, followed by a PhD in clinical psychology at CU Boulder, where she collaborated with Stanford University to research mindfulness and acceptance-based approaches for eating disorders. Diana completed her pre-doctoral internship in the eating disorder emphasis area at UC Davis and her post-doctoral fellowship at La Luna Centre Intensive Outpatient Programme for Eating Disorders. She went on to serve as the clinic director of La Luna Centre, where she helped develop an ACT-based group programme. Diana practices what she preaches as a mum of two, a homesteader and yoga teacher. I've been a follower of Psychologists Off the Clock for a long time, so I was excited to have the opportunity to interview Diana. It is my great pleasure to welcome Diana to the podcast, and I hope you find this episode both enjoyable and helpful.
So hi, Diana, and welcome to the podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on this. I've been a follower of you on Psychology on the Clock for a long time. So thank you for joining me and welcome. Thank you for having me on. This is going to be a fun conversation because I don't usually have conversations um, with therapists about therapy per se. Yeah. So it'll be a nice um, discussion between us. Fantastic. So could we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what it was that drew you to the helping professions? Well, that's always sort of a loaded question, right? Because <laughs> because therapists, we can, it's like, which story do you want? You want the real story or the, the cover story that I told when I was applying for graduate school? Um, so, well, I guess I'll just start by saying I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist and um, I'm in private practice in Santa Barbara. And I also am a podcaster. I lead workshops. I um, am an author. I wrote a book on ACT and I came to becoming a clinical psychologist really for personal reasons. And I think that's the case for a lot of therapists. I had my own recovery, my own recovery history with an eating disorder. And um, I really wanted to go into uh, research and explore that um, when I was in my twenties, you know, that's when I entered into becoming a therapist, but it's never really a direct route, right? You fly yeah. from California to New York, the, the airplane doesn't go straight. It goes ups and downs and sideways. And, and so my path has been really up, you know, ups and downs and twisty and turny. And when I yeah. was in graduate school, I took time off and I thought I was going to be a yoga teacher and then went back and changed my research direction. So, yeah. um, but it's always been from a place of wanting to help people who are stuck and who, who struggle and maybe find a different path for themselves. Yeah. Fantastic. I, I totally relate to that. The sort of twisty turning, I would say I took the scenic route in life. <laughs> it's never, it's never a one way to another, is it where we want to go? So you have a strong interest in healthy striving and thriving. Can you tell us more about this, including how you came to be passionate about the topic? Well, it sort of relates to that uh, that history there, right? If you think about um, somebody with an eating disorder, yeah. um, they are uh, extreme strivers. Mm. I interviewed Rhonda Merwin, um, who's a, a eating disorder specialist at Duke, and one of the things that she said is that folks with um, anorexia, in particular, are doing everything society has told them to do to be, uh, you know, either a good girl or a good boy or, or whatever it's almost they've taken their striving to an extreme. And for a long time, I struggled with my own striving originally in that realm, right? But then it, it sort of transformed and transmuted as I, as I grew up. And it really became my frenemy in a lot of ways where striving was very helpful for me to get a PhD and be successful and achieve things. But it always had that sort of underbelly of depletion or um, getting me into an ego-based state where I was striving for things that didn't really matter. Yeah. And I've seen that a lot in my work as a clinician. So I work with um, not only folks that have eating disorders, but I also work with a lot of high-achieving individuals, people that are high-achieving parents that are, you know, want to be the best parent they can possibly be, but getting caught caught up in unhealthy striving there, right? Keeping up with the Joneses or working with executives that are running companies and you can see the, the sort of dark side of their striving. 
And so I've come up with sort of some ideas around, especially looking at process-based approaches is what's happening when we get caught in unhealthy striving and how can we orient ourselves more towards a compassionate, skillful, um, and values-based type of striving. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I know for me, in my experience with chronic illness, I think a lot of that, well, multiple factors, but some of that was striving. I was a single parent whilst I did my degree and PhD and was working numerous jobs and, you know, and that that constant having to do, having to do, having to be good at what I do. Um, and I think you're right, once we can kind of come back to values and certainly for me, self-compassion has been an absolute life changer. Um, it makes such a difference, doesn't it? Because we don't want to necessarily give up striving, do, do we? We don't want to say, well, I'm not going to strive for anything anymore. No. And, and that's often what we're told to do as strivers or as perfectionists. Like you need to just stop being such, being such a perfectionist or, you know, <sighs> but actually what we're being perfectionistic about or what we're often striving for may be linked to something that's really important to us. Yeah. It's, it's more a question of what's driving it. Yeah. Is it driven by avoidance of feelings of not good enough? Is it driven by attachment, you know, sort of craving and holding on to things needing to be a certain way or praise from others or, you know, whatever the thing is that we get attached to? Or is it driven by an intrinsic sense of this is what really matters to me? This is the type of person I want to be in the world. Yeah. And so when we can unhook from sort of that, the, striving that's driven by attachment or avoidance and hook into, I really like in Buddhism, the concept of wise effort, right? Sort of a, yeah. sort of a, a deeper wisdom of how we want to be in the world. We want to put out in the world. Then we're a little bit more flexible with it. We're less yeah. rigid about what it needs to look like. And we also can start to see it as part of sort of a bigger network of, of ourselves that, that we have, um, you know, lots of different ways that we could engage in that type of intent in, in our values. And sometimes that means taking rests. Sometimes yeah. that means going hard, um, much yeah. more seasonal than maybe we allow ourselves to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a lovely way to think about it. Life in seasons. Um, sometimes it's for planting, isn't it? Sometimes it's for, for sitting back and, and waiting and having some patience. And other times it's about harvesting and doing the things that we need to do. And like you say, maybe pushing a bit harder than normal, but being mindful about what's motivating what we're doing. Yeah. So how has the work you do in this area helped you manage to navigate life with all the different roles you have? Because you you have many different roles, as, as we often do. Yeah, you know, too many roles sometimes. <laughs> I'm, off, I'm often questioning this um, you know, intentional use of time. And, um, yeah. you know, I had a um, conversation with Patricia Zarita Ona, and one of the things that came out of it was her talking about sometimes we need to say no in the service of our values, even if we're saying no to good things. Yeah. And it really landed, you know, personally for me of um, saying no to things. Yeah. is is part of being a skillful striver and saying no because it's in the service of me being able to say yes to this other thing that really really matters to me and what i'm figuring out is that 
some of these things that really, really matter to me don't always map on to what society tells me should matter to me. <laughs> things like, um, I've really learned that taking a midday break to go for a little walk or do a little yoga practice changes the course of my therapy practice if I go back in the afternoon. And what I should be doing is writing my notes or putting another client in or, you know, <laughs> writing that newsletter that I should, we all need to be writing newsletters or, you know, whatever those shoulds. But when I do it, when I actually listen in to what I really need and what my values are, then it guides me to a direction that um, is more fulfilling. And so that's one way that I've been navigating it is, is trying to really practice more of a sort of listening in to what I need and um, letting go of some of the expectations of what it's supposed to look like. Um, yeah. And then the flip side of that is also kind of throwing some stuff at the wall and seeing what's, and my dad was, um, whenever, whenever we made spaghetti, he would always take a strand of spaghetti and throw it against the wall to see if it sticks. Like, that's how you know it's done. I don't even know if that's accurate or not, but that's what my dad used to do. And I feel like as I've gotten further along in my career, I'm more willing to just throw some stuff at the wall and see yeah. what sticks and let go of, you know, the outcomes So really yeah. in the process of things. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Seeing what fits for you um, and tuning in. I, I'll often talk with um, supervisees and, and clients around who are you saying no to? Because I notice people are, are very quick to say, oh, I'm not good at saying no. I say, well, you are, but you just keep saying it to yourself when you're saying yes to other people. And when you were saying before, if you can say no to something, it means you can say yes to yourself in service of something that is meaningful to you mm -hmm. um, and that matters. I think that's really important. And you, you were talking about, you know, um, living a life that perhaps society doesn't recognize as how we should be living. And I came across a quote recently, um, which I just love, that is, it's okay to live a life that nobody else understands. Mm -hmm. You know, it's okay for us to actually tune in to what we want our life to look like. Um, so I really resonate with, with what you're saying in that stuff. I think it's really important that we um, we do tune in to ourselves and listen to that. Yeah. And sometimes it's for me. Sometimes it's tuning into the the uncomfortable parts within myself. Things yeah. like um, sadness or regret. Like if I look back over the past few years, what are some of the things I actually regret about them? Yeah. Uh, Dan Daniel Pink has a new book out called The Power of Regret. And he talks it about sort of this large research study he did with over 4,000 people where he looked at what are the common areas that people have regrets in. And there are areas like regret around not being as bold as they wish they would have been, yeah. regrets around connection, um, foundational regrets, like I wish I wore more sunscreen and <laughs> maybe yeah. less meat. Yeah. Uh, and then also moral regrets. And I think that part of this sort of unhooking from our unhealthy striving cycles and hooking into you know, more skillful ones is also being willing to enter into some of this discomfort of things like regret or yeah. sadness or longing and use that as information to guide our behavior here yeah. and now. 
Um, So the regret of like, I wish I spent a little more time with my partner in the morning, you know, because now I don't have that as an option. Maybe he passed or something like that. Well, that could inform me into how I'm going to spend my time with a friend or with the child. Yeah, absolutely. I think really it's that tuning into the whole of ourselves, isn't it? Not just the bits that are easy to be with. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, based on whatever your family of origin experiences might be messages of like, well, don't be sad. Don't pay attention to being sad. And I think that can be a learning content and a practice of how do we start to recognize and acknowledge some of those feelings that perhaps we've not paid attention to because they are important guides, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, it's like this middle path because sometimes we can get so caught up in our regrets we don't move forward yeah yeah (laughs) like we're stuck in the rumination of it all or the self-operation of it all or we're just like put our blinders on that we're like moving forward but we don't know what's around us right so there's this middle path of like touching in and using it as information and then not getting stuck in it but using it as like information to keep keep that water flowing you know it's got to go around some rocks and um but it's going to keep moving and, um, but there's a lot of information, I think, in our, in our emotions and our bodies yeah. and, uh, information that we've been trained up to discount, uh, or, or numb out from. Yeah, absolutely. I know for, for myself now that I have a very different relationship with myself and I tune in and listen, my life is very different. I make decisions very differently. You, you talk a lot about values in your work um, and in your in your book, you've, your Act Daily Journal. Um, how has connecting to your own values helped you in your decision making? And what are some of your favorite ways to work with values, both for yourself and with your clients? I'm going to ask, I'm going to answer the second part of that question first, and then I'll yep. answer the first one. Um, you know, I, I I think about values with clients oftentimes in, in two different ways. Um, one is I, I look where I see myself as like a values highlighter of looking at where, where is my client lighting up Yeah, and, and you start to see them telling a story and you can feel this sort of energy rising and the momentum and the excitement and the expansiveness and the vitality that your client is telling. And it could be a story about them walking their dog on the beach or it could be a story about a presentation that they're making. It doesn't really matter what the content of the story is, but I pay attention to what's happening for a client there. There's something they care about that they've been able to catch this wave of momentum. Yeah. I think of values as being like energy, motivation. It's a motivational quality. Yeah. And we can see that motivation rise within our clients. And then I'd go there, you know, like, what is it about that? But then we can also see our values show up for our clients around sort of like what I mentioned before, like with regret, what is painful for them and um, what, where are they um, really feeling that sort of that like longing space that maybe they're not making contact with something that's important to them or it's painful. And because it's painful, they're avoiding it, but they're also avoiding their values yeah. in the process. So I think that both vitality and pain within our, within the clinical room can be a way, way to access values um, and to not shy away from either of those as a therapist. Yeah. But, you know, 
how that applies to me in my own life is, is I turn that arrow in and I look at that for myself, like what's painful for Mm. me right now. And what does that say about what I care about and how I want to spend my time and energy? Um, I told a story, I did a podcast on acceptance recently and, um, I told a story that, um, I haven't been telling much, but it's been very much part of my life for the past year and a half. Um, which is, you know, sort of this, my, my um, partner and I both have been working from home during, you know, during COVID and, um, he loves red tail hawks and we live in this Canyon here. If you look behind me, you'll see like these Oak trees and this Canyon of of Santa Barbara. That's really lovely place to be a red tail hawk. And so they come out and they circle around half the time looking for my chickens. But so my, (laughs) my, my husband will say, come on up. You got to see the red tail hawk, honey. And half the time I'm like in the middle of a treatment note, or I'm doing something that's way more important than my husband's red tail hawk. And I'll get up there and I'll be too late and it's gone. Um, but about a year and a half ago, my husband, um, said, you know, Ben, I come up, look at a red tail hawk. And, uh, or no, he just said, come on up. And I came up mm-hmm. and when I was with him, he said, he couldn't see part of my face. And wow. so fast forward, a lot of trips to UCLA later, yeah. um, we found out that he has this progressive vision loss that he's never going to get back and that it's going to continue. Okay. So um, when my husband says, come look at a red tail hawk, yeah, there's nothing that's more important. Yeah. There is nothing that is more important in that moment. Yeah. And that is where I think we can start to look at where our pain points to our values and then our values motivate our behavior. Whatever that pain is for you, that's just my personal pain right yeah. now, but everyone listening has their own personal pain spots that they can turn to, to guide their behavior. And that's, what's guided, you know, some career changes that I've made in terms of leaving a very successful podcast to starting my home, my own. Um, and part of that is because my husband's my producer on my new podcast. And so I get to spend time with him and there's a person that I want to spend more time with. So that's a yeah. long-winded answer to your question. Yeah, but that's beautiful, and um, I'm sorry to hear that for your for your husband. Um, but I think it's so true, isn't it? That we, it, it's things like that that really highlight for us what is important. Um, I know I, I'd recently, a few months ago, had a loss in my life, and I'd been spending a fair bit away at home, sort of coming up the coast and and working on my own up here. And since that loss, I have chosen not to do that as much. Um, it's become really more more obvious to me that I really want to be sort of closer to my husband and my son. It, my son's left home, but we we still kind of connect and see each other. Um, and it was that experience for me that was like, well, hang on a minute. No, this is how I want things to be. Um, yeah, so important. So one of the areas I think can be challenging for us that brings up lots of uncertainty and array of different feelings is making changes in our careers and in our personal lives. And yet I think it's an important area of growth for both personal and career growth. So you just touched on before an example for your um, for you is that you left your role as host of Psychologists Off the Clock. And you started your own podcast, Your Life in Process. 
I wonder if you could talk about how you navigated that for yourself and what you found most helpful, because I think for many people um, who are working as helping professionals, there comes a point where there's a realization that things have to change um, or that people want things to change. I know for me, it came from chronic illness and I had to leave a workplace that I loved and there was lots of challenges in that. But making that decision for myself was the best thing I did for my health and my life. So what, how was that for you and how did you navigate that? Well, it's been really challenging, Mm. to be honest. Um, If we go back to those sort of cycles of avoidance and attachment, I would say both of those showed up for me really big time. Yeah. This decision. Um, avoidance being uh, avoiding, I've, I've known that I needed to leave for about a year. Mm. And some of the subtle ways in which I avoided that knowing were advice seeking, chronic advice seeking, like yeah. every single expert I could consult. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think? What do you think? And everyone's giving, you know, giving, giving me their advice based on their experience of themselves, which is not their, that's not my experience. Right. So, um, that's actually an experiential avoidance strategy. I'm kind of learning, which is about chronic advice seeking. There's nothing wrong with seeking advice and feedback, but when it becomes, um, as a, a way to avoid, um, and then avoidance of feelings like loss, avoidance of feelings like, um, what will people think? Yeah. Um, avoidance of, of, of pain and discomfort of making a transition and change. Right. So yeah, I will say that anytime we're kind of faced with sort of making a career shift, there's going to be a lot of discomfort that shows up in making a career shift like that. Yeah. And, um, if we, take left turns every single time we face discomfort, we'll find ourselves in a circle of indecision, yeah. which is what I, I was in for like a year, a circle of yeah. indecision. Um, <laughs> even though there was sort of like this inkling and knowing that was very values-based for me, I couldn't even yeah. put words to it, but I just kind of knew I needed to do mm. something different. Um, and I didn't know what that path exactly was going to look like. So the attachment part is another interesting one. And I'm, I've gotten more interested in this concept of attachment, both through its um, lineage of, of Buddhist principles of attachment as the source of our suffering, but also through some of the teachings of people like Joseph Sorochi that's talking about ego and attachment. Yeah. And, um, you know, with, with attachment, it's the gripping. It's, you know, there's a, there's sort of the Buddhist story about the monkey with the hand in the jar. My dad yeah. always tell me this story. My dad's a, um, he's a Buddhist teacher. So he'd always yeah. tell me like hands in the jar. So the hand in the jar holding onto the banana or whatever yeah. it is that there is, and that it has to let go of the banana in order to get the hand out of the jar. Yeah. You won't let go of it. And so I found myself like, what's my banana, you know, yeah. like, what am I holding on to? And it was very ego-based. It was yeah. holding on to things like, well, we have this many downloads or, wow, I founded this thing. So it's yeah. mine. Right. Yeah. And, um, and that attachment caused so much like suffering in yeah. me, yeah. um, because the gripping is exhausting. Honestly, it drains you to yeah. grip so hard. So I guess what's the path out of not doing those <laughs> is, um, a lot of willingness yeah. 
a lot of letting go, a lot of um, compassion, like, oh, this is hard, honey. (laughs) This is a hard thing to let go of. Like, this is going to be, you know, bumpy road and support from people that really know the why behind it for me. Yeah. Um, And then doing it. Yeah. Jumping yeah. in the water. Like, I, I love, I, yeah, I love, I love to ocean swim and there's just yeah. this feeling of, I don't want to every single time. And I go <laughs> and, yeah. and then once you're in and you actually, if you get your head under yeah. the water and you come back out, it's like, Oh yeah, this is what it feels like. It's actually yeah. it feels so much better that I put my head under the water. So um, I'm on the other side of that. Now, if you talked to me a, a number of months ago, I might've answered something a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you touched on something that, um, around identity it's like I founded this it's mine and I think we can get very caught in what our identity is particularly as helping professionals as well um I know when I made the choice to leave the practice I was at I didn't know what I was going to do I didn't know if my health was going to hold up and I and I had to get to a point of saying to myself it's okay if I'm never a psychologist and that had been a hell of a road for me as a single mom to get to be a psychologist. So there was a lot of distress around that. But it was really important for me for me to get to this place of sort of saying, I can take off the coat that says I'm a psychologist because I need to be Haley and take care of Haley. Um, so I think, yeah, it, and, yeah. And come right up against this thing of like, mm. if I'm not this, then who am I? Yeah. And then we got to make friends with that yeah. because I think, you know, I go to like a, a party or a, an event yeah. and people be like, oh, hi, who are you? What do you do? Yeah. And we, we, we put on this, this facade of like, this is who I am. And therefore it gives me value. Yeah. But what if that thing goes away? Yeah. Then, then what's under there and, mm. and making peace with that relationship of what's underneath there. One of the things that, um, I will start, I do a lot of experiential um, workshops with folks and the very, when I'm doing like a longer retreat or a longer full day workshop, one of the very things that I'll start with is um, this milling exercise where I play music and I have people mill around the space as if they were like at a cocktail party or a conference or, you know, whatever mill walk around. And there's this discomfort of like walking around. We haven't met each other yet at all. I haven't done any introductions. And then I, I pause the music, like it's musical chairs and whoever you are closest to, you have to turn to and you ask them, what do you care about? Yeah. And they answer just one or two lines. I care about my bees, I care about my kids, I yeah. care about, you know, a few things. And then I play the music again, musical chairs, walk around the room, pause. Yeah. <laughs> and by the end of that, you know, whatever, five, 10 minute exercise of what do you care about? We've gotten more connection and recognition of what's behind the facade than we would if we sat down and said, I'm a psychologist that does blah, 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 and has had this many clients and, you know, whatever it is that we live behind. Yeah. I love that. I love that. When When I'm meeting new people now, I try and remind myself, don't ask them what they do. Maybe down the track, maybe down the track, yeah. but don't meet somebody and ask because I think that's the thing. It's reinforced constantly, isn't it? Yeah. You know? Well, so here's the funny thing. I work in Santa Barbara and I don't know what you know about Santa Barbara, but we are like the Mecca 
of Hollywood stars and famous people. So like Prince Harry lives here, Oprah lives here, Ellen lives here. It is like the Mecca of like really famous people that have high profiles. And I'm not, I like actually don't follow up on any of that. I don't think I have read People Magazine since I was in my twenties or whatever it is you're supposed to read to find out. So I don't ask that question. Yeah, I don't. And I have had the experience of being three, four, five sessions into therapy with somebody Yeah. and folks that are really um, famous, they actually don't show their, they don't, they're like so used to hiding that part of themselves. I'll be so far along in therapy and have gotten such like a sense of who this person is. And then they'll mention something like they were like the producer of this crazy movie yeah, (laughs) or, you know, whatever. And it's so lovely for them. To have had this experience of yeah. connecting and have it not be about their ego state yeah, and just have it be about like, really, what are they coming into therapy for? Yeah. Right? So it's a wonderful way to be seen if, yeah. if we allow ourselves to be seen that way. And that requires us also stepping into that. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. We should all practice not asking people what they do. <laughs> And not leading with that ourselves. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, leading with what we care about, um, not what we do. Human beings, not human doings, right? Mm-hmm. So you've you've named your podcast and I'd heard you talk about um, this saying your, your life is not a work in progress, which I think is a very common phrase we, we've all heard for a long time. You know, I'm a work in progress, um, but a life in process. So can you explain to listeners what you mean by this and what are your tips for people to live their life in process? Well, first, I just want to say thank you, Haley, for being such a fantastic interviewer. Because you really, you really like, you know, are thinking about what would be meaningful for me to share about. And that's like a really meaningful thing for me to share about. So I appreciate you for asking that question. Oh, thank Um, you. That's lovely. Yeah. Um, sometimes we have to acknowledge each other in the interview, you know, <laughs> like we're talking to these listeners, but we're also talking to each other. And I'm like, wow, you're doing a really good job. Um, so life and life and process. I mean, I have so many times when we have clients come in to therapy, they come in as like, here are my problems and solve them. And part of my problem list is me. <laughs> like, I, like I'm a self-improvement project. Um, Actually, early on in my in my parenting, I read this book by Alison Gopnik called called the the Carpenter and the Gardener, mm-hmm. and Alison talks about like if we're if we're parents, oftentimes we treat our our kids like they're um, like a piece of wood that we're trying to sculpt into something. Yeah. We act we act as carpenters, and what we need to do is be more of gardeners, where we're just creating fertile fertile soil and see what will yeah. grow, like really nourishing good compost, good soil. And so the work in progress model is the carpenter model as if we are sort of these self-improvement projects that we need to carve away at and, you know, get somewhere, but a life in process model is much more of a gardener's model of like, I'm a gardener and and, in some, some years, like I have a really amazing tomato crop and some years it's the zucchini that's doing well. And it, it, it doesn't. I don't have as much control over that, but I do have control over what I put in the soil and how I take care of it and how I water it and all those things. Yeah. So that's one part of it is seeing our, our, you know, sort of our lives as twisty and turny and, and changing. And that, 
we're not problems to be solved, but we're really gardens to cultivate and take care mm-hmm. of and tend to. And then the other part of it, which is more like the science nerdy part of it all for me, <laughs> is um, this this penchant that I have for um, sort of where psychology is going in terms yeah. of process-based therapy. And the reason why I, I'm sort of enamored to, to process-based therapy is that finally we have an integrative approach. Yeah. Like finally we have an integrative approach that is no longer in the therapy wars yeah. of um, psychodynamic is better, CBT yeah. is better. No, now ACT is the best. That we actually have an approach yeah. that says, wow, what are the processes yeah. that are underlying human flourishing? And you will find them in psychodynamic therapy and you will find them in nature therapy and you will find them in movement therapy and you will find them in CBT. Yeah. And looking at the underlying processes that are involved in um, creating a rich and meaningful life. And so a life in process is all about that as well. Um, how to engage with those processes, how to help our clients engage with those processes. And some of those have been boiled down through, um, through research. And, and, you know, they include things like um, compassion and self-compassion, yeah. being mindful and present, um, things like efficacy and belief, hope. Yeah. Um, and, and those can really, when we start cognitive diffusion, when we start to work with those processes with ourselves, the clients, the are you know, really kind of, that's sort of the nutrients of that garden that, that yeah. help it grow. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, if we, if we allow ourselves to, I guess, I don't know if it's the right way to say it, but treat ourselves as our own clients, when we have this knowledge and skills as helping professionals, it can make such a difference to our own lives as well. We really kind of practice what we preach, so to speak, um, and immerse ourselves in the things that we know and apply them to our own lives so that our lives are a life in process as well. I love that sense of like how we're cultivating the soil. Um, that's beautiful. Yeah, I often tell my my husband, I'm taking myself on as a client. <laughs> I'm the hardest client I've ever met, but I can do it (laughs) because, and at the same time, I, I also have to recognize that clients that walk in my door are in different bodies in different contexts, have different biochemistry, have different life experiences, have different experiences of of oppression. Like all, you know, there's a lot of things that are, that are very different between, you know, yeah. I can't just say, Oh, well, this worked for me. So it's going to work for you. Yeah. Uh, that is like, that's a dead end, but, yeah. but, but the, but the humility as a therapist of saying like, yeah, I get, st- I get stuck in vicious yes. cycles. Totally understand that. Yeah. I've been completely demoralized and I was kind of demoralized this morning. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think it can help, um, our work in terms of seeing the common humanity amongst yeah. us. Absolutely. So, so on that, what, what do you find are the biggest challenges that you face in terms of taking care of yourself as a practitioner, a mom, a partner, a friend, a human being? Because I think people can think as helping professionals that, you know, we, we've got it all together, particularly if we've been doing this for a long time. I think some new practitioners coming through can can sometimes get stuck in that thought that, oh, they've been doing this a long time. They probably don't get stuck like this or, um, and like, no. kidding, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, the reason why I paused is like, where, where do I even begin with that question? It wasn't even- it's like, how long have you got? 
Yeah. How long have you got? And, and, and do I, do I, how basic do I make it or how complex? Um, okay. So I think I have a hard time sometimes disentangling the need to take care of myself with the value of caring for others. Yeah. And, um, you know, that just to kind of make it more like, I'll be in a session with a client. It's 50 minutes past the hour. I know that if I were to stop at 50 minutes past the hour, I would get 10 minutes to rest my eyes, go for a walk, get a drink of water, go to the bathroom, write that email that's been on my mind, like half the time with this client that I need to get off of my mind, you know, whatever it is that I need to do. Yeah. And the client is struggling. Yeah. And I can tell that they could use seven more minutes. And so in that moment, it's such a, it's such a hard thing, like, because it, that's the moment with the client, but I had the same moment with my kid this morning when I'm trying to get down to see a client and he's asking me to look at his spelling words, Yeah, you know, like how do we show up in these, in these places of caring for ourselves and caring for the people we are, we are caretakers that, you know, we are people that have chosen this profession because we deeply, deeply care for others' well-being. Yeah. And I guess my only answer to that is like the saying that my mom used to say is like, it all comes out in the wash. (laughs) Like sometimes, sometimes that means choosing to stay seven minutes with that client and then making the commitment to myself that on the next one, I'm really going to be there at 50 minutes after the hour. And I'm going to take those 10 minutes for myself. Right. And then sometimes it's, it's saying like, you know, this is really important. And what you're saying is really important and we need to pause here. And I know and trust that some of the things that we talked about in this session, you can apply in the minutes to, to, to help you out with this next, you know, sometimes it's like also recognizing that, um, that concept of like, if we do 90% of the work for the client, then they'll only do 10%, right. Of of passing the ball and, and giving them some, you know, some room to, to fumble. Yeah, but that's always a hard thing, and it's really moment to moment for me. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes I do it well, and sometimes I lose myself. Yeah, I, I think you touched on a really important one because I, you know, a lot of people I talk to in supervision um, struggle with the fifty-minute sessions. Um, mm-hmm. We we tend to have the fifty-minute clinical hour in Australia, as it sounds like you do there as well. And I think like you say, it's this, I don't know if you even know if balance is the right word, but it's finding that you're not always giving that time to the clients. Um, it doesn't become your default of, well, no, the client needs me. I need to give more, 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 more. And going back to what you said right at the beginning is what is motivating that? Mm-hmm. Are you staying in the session for the extra time because part of you is feeling like you're not a good enough therapist and you need to give your client more, 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 more. Or is it because this particular client in this context on this particular day has a need that they don't normally have at that point and that it's okay to stay with that? So I think, it, again, it's bringing mindfulness back in, isn't it? Being mindful about what's happening in the moment, what's motivating our decision and that we're not always just defaulting to giving to the other person, whether that's a client, whether that's your child, whether that's your partner, whoever it might be, whether it's the emails that keep bombarding you. 
um, so that we can keep an eye on ourselves and be taking care of ourselves. That's brilliant. Yes, you said it so well and so 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 beautifully. And and what you're demonstrating there is also sort of this functional analysis of it all. Mm. Yeah. What is the function of this behavior? Yeah. And and being an observer of that. Another thing about sort of this process-based therapy model that I'm, you know, digging right now is this idea of um, variation, selection, and retention. So variability being um, that we have a lot of different ways that we could yeah. respond that we're not always doing it this, this one way. Yeah. Because the, the, there's also the flip side of things is you could be the rigid 50 minuter yeah. where like you are always like, nope, I have to go for my walk. If I don't go for my walk, then my day is just totally screwed. I can't ever, you know, yeah. I need my 10 minutes. I mean, that can be its own form of attachment, right? Yeah. But we need to sort of practice and be playful and flexible with the variability of behavior yeah. as we're asking our clients to do try it out see what happens yeah. and then the selection part is selecting which things worked for you yeah and and what was the result what was the impact and then the retention is okay let's try that again it kind of worked for you can you know how do we practice that that deliberate practice so and then it becomes you know sort of having some kind of framework uh, yeah. but it's a flexible it's a flexible one yeah, that flexibility in all things, hey, mm -hmm. in all things, which um, totally, totally random just made me think about the fact that you had mentioned to me that um, you, you have an interest in physical movement for therapists as well. And I was thinking flexibility in all things, including our bodies, we need to take care of our physical selves as well. Um, that's an area you mentioned that you thought at one point you might be a yoga teacher. How do you incorporate that for yourself, say in a work day? Cause I'll, I'll talk to, um, people about, you know, give yourself some time between session, maybe do some stretching. I'm, I'm not trained in yoga. I used to do yoga. Haven't done it for a long time. Um, but what, how do you incorporate that in terms of kind of taking care you're talking about all my favorite things. Here, so thank you. I feel like, I feel like I'm in an ice cream shop and I get to sample all my favorite flavors because movement is one of them. And yes, I, I, um, withdrew from graduate school and went to a yoga ashram, uh, before deciding to go back. And since then, and actually very much part of my own healing from recovery was, was making friends with my body again. Yeah. And I, you know, I actually have something called scoliosis, which is a, yeah. a crooked spine. And the worst thing you can do for scoliosis is sit for a lot of hours. <laughs> so she's tricky as a therapist. <laughs> and so I've had to look at, okay, if I, if I actually were going to work with clients and not completely deplete and destroy myself in mm. my work so that at the end of the day, I feel like crap, but they feel better. That's, yeah. that's actually kind of like that model. There's something messed up about that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, how, how could I do that? What would that look like? And um, that is that includes everything from um, I will sit on the floor for a portion of my sessions. I am a um, what I have found for me functional movement, different types of sitting positions is really wonderful for my body. That our bodies are sort of like you can imagine if you put a couch on a um, carpet for ten years and you lift yeah. up that couch after ten years, what you'd see on the carpet. Yeah. But what if you put the couch on the carpet and you moved it? 
every three minutes for 10 years, just in subtle little movements around mm. the carpet. You lift it up after 10 years, what are you going to see? Yeah. Right. So, so the same is true for our bodies. We're, we're meant to be moving and repositioning and not be, you know, stagnant, everything from like our blood flow to, you know, just our, um, the health of our, our bodies. And what we know also about um, taking care of our bodies is that it impacts our, our mental health. Right. Yeah. So, um, so that's one thing is that I've, I've designed my office space so that I have a space in it for um, yoga, stretching, meditation. I sit in different positions with clients throughout the day. Um, I will move with clients. I'll ask them to move with me to demonstrate a a particular um, exercise. Um, So like a really um, typical one that I'll do with clients that you and I can do right now is we can move our eyes by looking out at the horizon, looking out at a window or if you can, if there's something um, that's sort of far away, relaxes your eyes. And by looking at the horizon, you also are activating parts of your brain that are more allocentric. It's, it's really resting for the eyes and also resting for each other. And then we can come back to looking at each other again and just notice the difference of how it feels of having looked away. So that would be a movement for our audience, for our eyes. And we have to be really careful when we talk about movement and bodies that we're including all forms of bodies, all forms of abilities. Yeah. It doesn't mean doing yoga or going for a walk for some people. Yeah. For some people that's taking an eye rest. For some people that's noticing how we're holding our breaths and sucking our bellies in. Yeah. Can we move our bodies by letting our bellies go right now and slowing our breath down? That's a movement. Yeah, that's a letting go. And um, so I'll incorporate lots of different types of um, movement and body based practices into the work that I do. That's beautiful. And I think that's a really important point that not all bodies are the same. I, I live with chronic illness and movement can be difficult for me. And I'll talk with people around um, reframing what movement means. And sometimes for me, that is just sitting in a chair, lifting my arms or rolling my shoulders. Sometimes it's doing some form of (laughs) interpretive dance to the music in my own head in my kitchen. Um, Sometimes it's going for a walk, um, but sometimes it's the tiniest movement. You know, if it's a day where movement is tricky, I come back to like, like with life, what's the smallest next step? You know, is it just opening and closing your hands just to give your fingers a stretch? Um, so I think they're really important points you make. And I love that you um, you incorporate that. But also that you said you'll sometimes sit on the floor. I think people can get really stuck in. We have to be in an office, in a particular chair, sitting a particular way, doing a particular thing if we're a therapist. And that's just not how it is, hey? No. You know what? The One of the best things we can do is come into the room. If you always sit in one chair and the client always sits on the couch, have them sit in your chair and you sit yeah. on the couch. Yeah. Notice what happens to the dynamics in the room just by doing that. Yeah. Right? I mean, I love all the gestalt work. I love... Um, I did a stint of um, psychodrama training when I was in graduate school. I used to run these groups and I got put with this co-therapist who was a master psychodramatist. And it was so powerful to just be moving around, you know, having clients like, you know, position your body in the position that you felt like when you, when you stood up and you, you know, you won that award and you felt so great, like expand your arms, whatever that position was in and embody that. Right. Because 
actually, I'm reading this fantastic book by Anna Murphy Paul about the extended mind. And in it, she talks about how, you know, we think about our minds as existing in our brains, but our our minds exist in our gesturing. Yeah. All the different cultural gestures that are so unique to that culture. Like in Peru, we kiss on the left side of the cheek. But when I meet with my um, French uh, uh, sister-in-law, she kisses both sides of the cheek, you know, like yeah. these like little subtle yeah. things, right? Um, so we, we, our mind is in our gestures. Our mind is in our bodies and our interoceptive awareness. Our mind is in our relationships with one another, how we're communicating. Um, and, and all of these different ways of accessing ourselves when we're with a client can be creative yeah. and also can be expansive of, of looking at different points of view. Yeah. yeah, that's fantastic. So what would be, if you can pick one, this is always tricky, what would be one piece of advice that you would share with our listeners? Oh gosh, uh, I don't know if I'm in a position to give advice, honestly. <laughs> Um, I guess my, my piece of, my piece of advice is to listen to your own advice. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> what, what, what does your inner wisdom say? Um, what does your body say that's right for you? And, um, and that subjective, you know, we're, we're taught to be so objective as yeah. psychologists. Yeah. There's value in the subjective, your personal experience of the world matters so listen to that I love that when you said before you became um like a chronic advice seeker um as a as a way of avoiding what you really knew already um but didn't want to face I think that's beautiful is yeah listen to your own wisdom so if you could meet your 80 year old self Diana what do you think she'd say to you Um, well, I, first, can I start with what I'd say to her? <laughs> Absolutely, you can. <laughs> I, I adore you. <laughs> I, I adore my 80-year-old self for making it to 80 and how, um, how incredible it is to be you at 80. I love it. Probably how many things you've let go of and are wise and all those things. Um, so I would start by saying I adore you and nice to meet you and honor. And then, um, and then. I don't know what she would say. I mean, I think she'd probably just say, you're doing fine. You're doing a good enough job. And you always have, you know? Um, So she probably would say that. That's lovely. So can you tell us a little bit about any current projects that you're currently working on? Uh, Too many. So (laughs) all exciting. Um, I, you know, I, I am... I've really gotten interested in, um, in teaching. And that's one of the reasons why I started your life in process is that I wanted to be able to teach more and not have it be such a like interview style. There was many reasons why I started, but that's another reason why. And so, um, I don't know when this is going to be released, but I teach to therapists. Um, I have some workshops that are both on demand and I think are recorded through PESI and Praxis on ACT um, and on ACT Daily, how to bring ACT into your daily life. And I have an online course that's just through me that um, I I love that, you know, I created. Um, And then I'm also um, really excited about being on Insight Timer. 
Yes. So I, I love teaching meditations and kind of goes back to some of my yoga training. So I, that's sort of new for me is just um, offering some free meditations on insight timer. And eventually, you know, I want to be doing more um, in-person retreats. So I'm leading a retreat to Costa Rica this spring, uh, which is just for me, really meaningful work of spending time together in a retreat environment where we yeah. can really take on these, um, these ideas and really embodied, embodied them. So, um, I might be doing one with Pessy in November, potentially in Sedona, but that we're still ironing out um, the details of that, but hoping to return to Costa Rica again next year. Oh, beautiful. Oh, well, when, when the world fully opens to travel again, I might have to come and join you on one of those. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's something I'm looking forward to starting to be able to do here for people as well. Some more retreats and things. Be lovely. Um, so if people want to find out more about you or get in touch, where can they find you and engage in your work? You yes, mentioned so Pessy and Praxis. The best place to go is just my website because I'll list all of the events of everything that I'm offering there. And I, I blog regularly and have a newsletter that people can sign up for and you know all those things. Um, and then the, the, the podcast, subscribe. It really helps me out if you subscribe. Remember, I'm starting from zero here. <laughs> I got my mom as a listener and hopefully you Haley, but yes, you've got so, me definitely. I've subscribed. Yeah. yeah. So if you're a podcast listener, just to let folks know, especially in thinking about this podcast too, and listening to Haley's, when you subscribe to the podcast, it really helps us out as opposed to just listening to it. And then it also helps us out if you write a review on Podchaser, which has a little like a bits of steps to it, but that um, lets people know about the podcast. And, and when you write a review, it encourages other people to listen. So if you want to get back to Haley in this podcast, go write a review on Podchaser and subscribe. Oh, you're such a darling. Thank you. I didn't know about Podchaser. So you're a very experienced podcaster. I'm I'm just about to launch in, I think we're recording this on, what are we, the 5th of February. The first episode of season two comes out next week. Um, okay. So I'm very new to all this. You're very, uh, very experienced. So thank you for that. That's, uh, that's great. And if you, you'll give me the links and I'll put that in the show notes so people will be able to access um, you and your work as well. But I could talk to you all day, Diana. Um, this has been so lovely. And thank you again so much for coming on. Welcome to Self Caring for the Human in the Therapist Chair. It's been an absolute thrill for me. Thank you for having me. You're a wonderful conversationalist, and it's just wonderful to be in this space with you. So, well, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for sharing this time with me today. I hope your time here was helpful and supportive. If there has been something in this episode that you have found helpful, I invite you to share it with another person you think might benefit. I'd also love it if you'd like to leave a review wherever you tune in. Reviews really help to increase awareness of podcasts, meaning I can spread helpful information more widely. All reviews are welcome and much appreciated, as I know they take time out of your day. Music and editing by Nissa Ray. Thanks, Nissa. I wish you all well in your relationship with yourself and may you go well and go gently.